Okay, welcome to Think Jewish, and this week's Torah portion is Vayetze, but we're going to veer away from the specific Torah portion. Today is Rosh Chodesh Kislev. It is the first day of the month of Kislev in 1978, when the Rebbe of Blessed Memory had a heart attack on Simcha Torah. Rosh Chodesh Kislev was the first time that he came out to the public and uh, went home, and that has become a day of celebration. And it fits into many of the celebrations of the month of Kislev, the Jewish calendar month of Kislev, uh, this coming week, that means after Shabbat. The week after this, on Tuesday, is the 10th of Kislev, which is the day, as we'll soon see, that the second Lubavitcher Rebbe was released from the Tsar's prison. And then after that, another, on the 19th of Kislev, we have the redemption of the release of the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was in the Tsar's prison. And we're going to talk about that today. But the reason I'm giving you that introduction is because these redemptions are all connected with a verse of King David in the book of Tehillim, the book of Psalms, chapter 55, verse 19. And what does that verse say? Pada bishalom nafshi, ki berabim hayu imadi. And the exact English translation is, He redeemed my soul with peace from the battle that came upon me because of the many people who were with me. The emphasis of this verse, Pada bishalom nafshi, is not that he was redeemed, not just that he was redeemed from war. If he would have had a war, it would have been a bloodbath, and he would have came out alive, he still would have to give thanks and praise to God. But the key emphasis over here is the second word. It wasn't just a redemption of war, it was pada bishalom. The redemption came through peace. So we're going to look a little bit into this verse and some interesting things I'm going to share with you. According to our sages, and there are two statements of our sages that are quoted about this. There is one in a book called Medrash Tehillim. It's a Medrash, homiletic teachings on the book of Tehillim. And the other one is Medrash Rabbah. The Medrash Rabbah is a famous Medrash, Abraham the Chumash. And uh, for, we're going to quote directly from Medrash Tehillim because he says what Medrash Rabbah says and he adds something else on. And what happens there is that this verse in the teachings is the gateway not only of King David's redemption, rather it also speaks about the redemption of Rachel from the eyes of Esau and it also talks about the redemption from Daniel when he was thrown into the lion's den. That's what the Medrash says here. So the Medrash Tehillim says that it's talking about Rachel. She was redeemed peacefully from Asaph. There were two sisters and two brothers. Rachel was not having any children. So therefore they said that Rachel would end up divorced from Jacob and fall into the hands of Asaph. And... The verse tells us, nafshi, Rachel was peacefully redeemed from, from Esau. Another teaching is, in the same Medrash, another teaching is that it refers to Daniel. And Daniel, as you know the story, he was thrown into the lion's den and a miracle happened that none of the lions approached him. And over there, also, they say the teaching of nafshi, he was redeemed peacefully then there's King David. Now in this Medrash, King David is referring to, in this Medrash, in the Medrash Rabbah, he's referring to the war between him and Ahach Ahitophel, and he was redeemed with peace. That means David waged a lot of wars that was full of bloodshed, but in this war it was done with peace, and therefore he's giving a special thanks to God, Padab Shalom Nafshi. Now the Medrash emphasizes on this verse that the first half of the verse depends upon the second half of the verse. And what does that mean? That why was this redemption done peacefully 
Why was it Pada Bishalom Nafshi? Because of the second half, Kibarabim Hayu Imadi, for the many who were with me. And the Medrash list who? Rachel was redeemed because Jacob and Leah also prayed for her. So there was the prayer of the many. Daniel was saved because his colleagues, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, prayed for him. And then it says that King David was redeemed in peace because the people, the Sanhedrin, the judicial sages prayed for him. And thus there's a very interesting teaching in the Medrash that what allowed for this redemption to be done peacefully and not with bloodshed is the many prayed for him. So Jacob and Leah brought a peaceful redemption to Jacob. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah brought a peaceful redemption to Daniel. And the Sanhedrin, the judicial sages, were the ones that through their prayer, they brought a peaceful redemption to King David from the war with Achitophel. So it is. Interesting enough, we find that this verse, even in more contemporary times, the uh, first Lubavitcher Rebbe was arrested on the second day of Sukkot, uh, Chalamot Sukkot, and it went until the 19th of Kislev. And in Tanya, in, in part number four, he writes over there in the letters, Igeris HaKodesh, the Apostles, he writes over there, very interesting, and I quote to you, when I read in the book of Tehillim the Pasuk God redeemed my soul with peace and he says over there that before he even finished the verse and went to the next verse he already he was redeemed peacefully from his incarceration by the Tsar in order from, from God the God of peace and, and, and I don't want to get into the whole story because we'll talk about that when we get up to the 19th of Kislev. But in case you're wondering why was the Rebbe arrested, it's very simple. The Rebbe took upon himself to support charity to his colleague slash mentor teacher, Rebbe Mendel Vitebske, who was in Israel. Israel was under Turkey. And that was a time of the Turkey-Russian war. So that was seen when it was snitched. When they snitched upon him, it was seen as a huge betrayal to the country and therefore was such a harsh imprisonment his by the way this took place in the year 1798 the next generation his son Rabdov Ber known as the Mittelterebbe was also arrested and he was redeemed in the year 1826 and it's very interesting on what day of the month was he redeemed on the 10th day the Tehillim is divided in a couple of ways one of the ways it's divided is by the days of the month, and another way it's divided is by the days of the week. If you open up your Tehillim, you'll actually see. It tells you what number day, if you're talking about the month, and it tells you what day of the week. If you look at the day of the month, chapter 55, which is the verse we're talking about, is on the 10th day of the month. So thus, the second Lubavitcher Rebbe, his redemption is also connected with this verse. And then we go further, many years later, 1929, when the previous Rebbe was arrested in 1927, and then, I'm sorry, 1927, why am I saying 1929? And when he was arrested, what day did he leave? The 12th of Thomas came out on a Tuesday. Tuesday, if you divide the Tehillim by the day of the week, chapter 55 is in the day of the week. So this teaching of the Medrash is actually telling us that this verse has become a gateway for many righteous people for their personal redemption. So when I say personal, I don't mean the war against a righteous person is always a war against what he stands for. It's not personal. But I meant in the different generations. We had it already. The Medrash tells us Rachel. We talk about Daniel. We talk about King David. We talk about the Alter Rebbe. We talk about the Mitzvah Rebbe. And we talk about the previous Rebbe. And they're all related to this verse, Pada Shalom Nafshi, He redeemed my soul in peace. Now, when we talk about... Redeeming my soul in peace, I told you the Medrash. 
but I want to share with you a different interpretation on this very verse which King David says. It says that Padab Shalom Nafshi, he redeemed my soul in peace. He wasn't talking about the war with Achitofel, he was talking about the war with Avishalom. You remember Avishalom proclaimed himself king, and King David had to deal with it. And over there it says, a little different. Over there it says, for the many that prayed, that were with me, that prayed for me, who is that? The men of Avshalom. The army of Avshalom was actually praying that King David should win. Now, according to the mystical teachings, this is the ultimate understanding of Padabi Shalom Nafshi. What does it mean you redeemed my soul with peace from war? What it means is that there was a transformation in the enemy. When you have the enemy transformed, that he is praying for your victory, then we're talking about the concept of the true Padab Shalom Nafshi. So the war of transformation is the true war of peace. I'm just going to, parenthetically speaking, an example that you and I are going to deal with. If you look in next week's Torah portion, Esav is coming marching to take revenge on Jacob that he stole the blessings from Isaac. And what does the verse say? I noticed two opinions in Rashi quoted from the Talmud, but what does the verse say? The verse says that there was the ultimate transformation that Jacob was hugged and kissed by Esav. That's what we call the transformation of an enemy. So when we talk when we talk about this concept of Padab Shalom Nafshi, what we're talking about is that the men of Avshalom were praying for the victory of David. Now, when we say when we say, and I quote you from the Medrash, and I tell you from the history of the three Lubavitcher Rebbes that who their redemption of their eggs of their arrest by the Tsar and then later by Stalin was connected with the verse Pada Bishalom Nafshi, each one of these have a very different layer. It gets deeper and deeper. This notion of transforming the enemy actually has layers upon layers. It gets deeper and deeper until the ultimate Pada Bishalom Nafshi transformation of the enemy is done by Mashiach. Mashiach's redemption is the ultimate transformation. In other words, when we talk about why did the redemption of Egypt not last? And the answer is because we took the Jews out of the enemy, but the enemy still remained. And thus that redemption was followed by another exile. The concept of Mashiach is not that we take the Jew out of exile, but the famous teaching is that the word exile is Gola. The job of Mashiach is to bring the Aleph, God, into the Gola, which turns Gola, exile, into Geula, which means redemption. So the difference that's going to happen between what Moses took us out of Egypt and Mashiach bringing the entire world to world peace is that the redemption of Egypt allows for the enemy to remain. And thus it's followed by another exile. While the redemption of Mashiach is the ultimate Pada Bishalom Nafshi, the transformation of the enemy, and thus there can't be any more exile because if evil is eradicated, then the entire notion of exile cannot be possible. And that's why that's called the final redemption. So when we talk about Padabi Shalom Nafshi, when we talk about this concept that the ultimate redemption through peace is by the transformation of the enemy, that works in stages. Each one getting deeper and deeper and deeper. So now let's just talk about it in the general aspect. If you look in the general teachings, you will see that there are three layers to Padab Shalom Nafshi. In the general teachings of Hasidis and in Kabbalah, there are three layers. The three layers or levels are King David, King Solomon, and Mashiach. 
What does this mean? King David waged war. But by the end of his reign, the enemies were afraid to attack. The enemies left us alone. At that time when they left us alone, it was peace. Now, at that time, King David turns to God and says, I am living in a palace and you are living in a tent. And he decides then that he's going to build a palace for God on Mount Moriah. And he explains why there's like the beautiful spot of the ox is right in between the two shoulders. So it's high, but it's a little lower than the two mountains on the side. So he perfectly picks Mount Moriah and he lets know he wants to build a house of God. What is he told by God? He is told by God that you will not be able to build my house because your hands are full of blood. You're a man of war, but your son, King Solomon in Hebrew, Shlomo, which comes from the word Shalom, peace. He will build my house. Why will he build my house? God says, Ki Shalom Because in his days there will be peace. Now the question that's asked is, by the time that King David is asking the prophet that he wants to build the house of God, there was peace in his days. The wars are over. So why couldn't he do it? If you need to have peace in your days, he too had peace in his days. Yeah, it took him a while to establish. It took him a while to secure the boundaries. It took him a while to send a message to the people, do not mess with us. But after that, there was peace in his days. The mystical teaching of why is, not because he had blood on his hands from yesterday, but because the peace that he uh, ushered in was not true Padabi Shalom Nafshi. Why? Because if the reason the enemies are not attacking is because they're afraid of your army, that means that you've only eradicated actual war. You have not eradicated potential war. Because they're sitting there crouched, waiting for the moment to pounce, attack, and eradicate. So the Padabe Shalom Nafshi is not real because your enemy has not been transformed. He's only laying crouched and hushed down and silent because he's afraid of your atomic power. But the minute that is neutralized, either because they've created nuclear weapons or because you don't have the strength you used to have, at that moment, we've gone from potential war to, God forbid, actual war. Thus, when God tells King David that it's not in your days because there is no peace in your days, he's not talking about the historical days of war. He's talking about the present days of peace are not peaceful days. Because to have peacefulness, you need to eradicate by transforming, not by throwing fear. Simply speaking, I speak about this often. War, ultimately speaking, cannot end on the battlefield. It's got to end in the classroom. Because that's where minds are transformed. If it's out on the battlefield, you'll never have true resolution. It's only temporary resolution. What we need is transformation of minds. That's where peace is true. So King David did, did achieve peace, but not the true peace of Padah B'Shalom Nafshi. It was just a fear factor that were keeping the enemies back. Okay? Now obviously, we can sit and talk about these three levels on mystical layers, and we can talk about it on historical layers, but what we need to do here tonight is talk about it on personal layers. We need to know what these three different levels of peace mean to us in our internal fight. So we're going to talk about that. That's where, we're, that's where we're heading to tonight. Let's go to King Solomon. King Solomon, he had peace not because of fear. He had peace because the greatness of his wisdom and light is what drew peace. Queen Sheba didn't come because she was afraid of his armies. 
the peace that took place in the days of David was because they were nullified to his greatness of wisdom and his greatness of light. And therefore, in King Solomon's day, it wasn't a, a fear factor. It was rather a respect and admiration factor. That's a whole different bowl of wax. Over there, there's no war, not because I'm afraid I'm going to start with you and you're going to beat me, but rather there's a respect there. And because of that respect, there was padabe shalom nafshi to the extent that shalom ayabiyamav. There was peace in his days. However, if he achieved this transformation, then what is the difference between King Solomon's peace and Mashiach's peace? And the answer is, just look at the history. While we're saying that King Solomon in Kabbalah is called the full moon, he achieved true peace through transformation. However, let's look at the historical facts. After King Solomon, there were more wars against the Jew, Jews leading up to the war which has led us into the exile until this very day. So obviously the transformation was not a complete transformation. Was it to be a complete transformation like I spoke to you a moment ago about Mashiach, there would be no wars after King Solomon. So what went wrong with King Solomon? If it wasn't just fear, it was also admiration and respect, then what was wrong? It should have been over once and for all. The anti-Semitism should have come to an end. If you respect the Jew, then you're not hating the Jew. And the answer is because King Solomon's... It's very, this is a very fine line here. We really need to understand this. It's, it's, it's a very fine line in Jewish mysticism. King Solomon's effect on the enemy was an imposition upon the enemy... It was not a transformation of the genetics of the enemy. I want to say that again. The transformation that King Solomon caused in his enemies was an imposition upon the enemies. It was not a genetical transformation of the enemies. So while the enemies realized that King Solomon's greatness, his wisdom, his light, his divine light, and all of that was absolutely worthy of respect, of admiration, and of peace, they did not genetically change who they were. And therefore, the minute you took away that greatness, they resurfaced to who they genetically are. I want to just give you an explanation, just an example that I use sometimes. You open up the sink, right? There's a little flow of water coming down. Gravity pulls it down. That's the natural flow. When you turn on a fan on the side of that flow, the water does not go straight down. It's blown away. What happens the minute you shut off the fan? The water comes straight back down. Why? It's the same thing that happened in the Torah. What does it say? And God had the eastern wind blowing, and thus there was a splitting of the Red Sea. But what happens when God took away this, the, the eastern wind? It came crashing back down on the Egyptians. In other words, if you don't change the enemy within themselves, their genetic transformation, not the imposition upon them, the fact that they were blinded and overwhelmed by King Solomon did not make an everlasting change. So I'm going to give you a very simple just a very simple example. You guys are familiar with NDE? Ever heard of NDE? Near-death experiences. It's a whole scientific study. Most near-death experiences are not everlasting changes. Just, I mean, I don't know how many of you here ever, God forbid, got into a serious accident. But probably if you did get into a serious accident, you probably swore to yourself that you're going to stop driving without a seatbelt and you're going to stop driving fast and you're going to stop cutting through yellow slash red lights and that usually lasts for two weeks. Because it wasn't an internal change. It was an overwhelming smack upon you which caused you to just stuff your behavior. 
So in the moment, you really saw the light. In the moment, you really saw how important it is to follow rules and to drive safely and to not text while you drive and yada, yada, yada. But that cannot, that cannot long endure because what's causing you to do what you're doing was not changed. It's the fan blowing on the water. So King Solomon caused an overwhelming imposition upon his enemies that regardless of their own genetic makeup, as Rashi says, Esav Soneliakov, the genetic makeup of anti-Semitism, there's once a great article about Poland. Poland, anti-Semitism with no Jews. Because it has nothing to do with the Jew being there or not. So what happens is, that when you have that imposition, as long as the imposition is there, it'll have its desired effect. Take away the imposition, take away King Solomon, and what you're going to have is nature return to its genetic self, to its genetic flow. And that's why the transformation of even King Solomon, which earned respect, admiration, not just fear, was not everlasting. What's about Mashiach? What's Mashiach going to do? So I want to read to you a verse that it says about Mashiach. Rambam quotes this verse. It comes from Tsefania. For then I will convert the peoples to a pure language that all of them call in the name of the Lord to worship him of one accord. What is that Pasuk telling us? What that Pasuk is telling us that Mashiach is here to make the transformation from within the enemy. Not an imposition upon the enemy, but to literally change the genetic DNA ladders of the enemies, that the enemies will not want war, they will actually be people of goodness and kindness and peace. So we talk about the three layers of Padab Shalom Nafshi. Redemption through peace. The first one is brought about by fear. Don't mess because you got burnt and you're going to get burnt again. The second one is admiration, but not of your own accord, but from an overwhelming, amazing wisdom and light. And then there's the ultimate transformation, which is not imposed upon, but brought upon from within. That is the true transformation. That's all Kabbalistic, that's all historical, but let's talk about something very interesting. We spoke about physical historical wars. We spoke about King David, we spoke about King Solomon, and we spoke about Mashiach. Let's talk about primordial. It's very interesting. What does Job say about God? He refers to God as Ose Shalom Bimromav. What does Ose Shalom Bimromav mean? What it literally means, he makes peace up there and is exalted. That means war is not the product of mankind. Actually, it's amongst angels. Angel Michael and Angel Gabriel, fire and water. Shamayim is made up of the two words, Esh Umayim fire and water, and he has to bring peace upon them. And then not only that, but you should know that souls, souls themselves, are not at peace. Because in the books of Kabbalah, there's what we call the male soul and the female soul. Please do not confuse that with the soul of a female and the soul of a male. For example, in the teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidus, we talk about the difference between the soul of Moses and the soul of Elijah. They're both, by the way, they're both physically males. But even within that, we're talking about on a mystical level, there's a difference between what they call the soul of Mah, 45, and the soul of Ban, which is 52. But for our language today, not getting into the numerology of God's names and what they mean, male, female, I'm just saying within souls, there's such a thing called the soul of Dukhra, which is male, and the soul of Nukva, which is female, which has nothing what to do whether you're born a male or a female. 
So right there you have antithetical souls, two opposites, and obviously we need to make peace between them. Let me share with you something else. War goes so far back that the Torah, which is written that the Torah existed 2,000 years before the world was created. And over there already we have the war. We have the war between the spiritual and the physical. Torah is, as we know it, the most spiritual being of all. The wisdom of God, the will of God. We're talking about the supernal crown here. We're talking about way pre-creation. And nevertheless, the only way to have Torah and mitzvahs in its full essence power is by it manifesting itself in the physical world. So while there is the spiritual notion of Shabbat, and while there is the spiritual notion of kosher, and while there is a spiritual manifestation of tefillin, the Gemara says, the Talmud says, tefillin the more alma maksiv God's tefillin, what's written in it? Our tefillin says, Shema Yisrael Hashem Lekin Hashem Echad. Hero is the God, the God, God is one. What does God's tefillin say? That means that there is the spiritual manifestation of tefillin. And nevertheless, in all these great spiritual manifestations, the ultimate essence of Torah and mitzvot, and where the essence of its author, God, truly expresses itself and clothes itself, is only when we talk about the physical human being who works six days a week, rests on Shabbat from what the Torah calls work. It's only when we talk about a physical animal that has split hooves and chews its cud and was kosherly slaughtered and was salted to remove all blood. That's where the real essence of the author of the Torah, God, is really found. Not in the spiritual dimensions of. When a physical male over the age of 13 puts on physical tefillin on his physical arm made of physical hide, physical parchment, physical ink, that is where the essence of Torah expresses itself. So right there again, you have the antithetical paradox. The ultimate spiritual must become one with the ultimate physical. If not, you won't have the true manifestation of Torah mitzvot. So God set up creation from its very get-go, or shall we say 2,000 years before its very get-go, to face war. War was the focus of creation. To have opposites, and the opposites are not going to get along. Let's talk about the focal point of all creation. What is the focal point of all creation? Mankind. What happened in mankind? Every other creature, the verse says, And God said, Let the earth give forth living creatures. And God said, Let the water give forth living birds. And we actually taught that living animals, the first time around, came out of the ground. What happened by man? It doesn't say that. It says, And God formed the body of dust. And after the body was a total inanimate object, a dead body, an inanimate object, then it says, And God breathed into his nostrils the ultimate spirituality. That means that human being is the ultimate proxy of war. The ultimate godly soul with the ultimate physicality. And now understand what this all means. And understand what it means the spiritual with all its character traits and psyche has to deal with the body and all its impulses, egocentric driven psyche. That means that from the get-go, creation was all about a battlefield. And we need to understand why. Why did God create that there should be a battlefield? And then, interestingly enough, God tells us that the battle that I want you to fight is Pada Bishalom Nafshi. 
I want you to fight the battle in which there'll be no bloodshed. You know, there's a book out there by a great lawyer. I'm trying to remember his name. I read the book and I don't remember his name. I always remember him as the guy who represented that uh, monarch from, I think it was the Philippines, the famous lady who had like 10,000 shoes. What was her lawyer's name? Whatever, no. So the lawyer wrote a book, How to Argue, yes, How to Argue and Always Win. And he talks about his career, juries, everything. A lot, I learned a lot from that book. But it has one chapter there which is very interesting. He talks about the argument between spouses, which is very different than any other argument. Why? Because if we believe in this notion that spouses is one plus one equals one, so if one wins and the other one loses, they automatically lost. Right? <laughs> the men over here are looking down because they know the fact. <laughs> There's nothing more disturbing than winning an argument with your wife. <laughs> You'll be paying for that. So the concept here is that God's telling you, Pada bishalom nafshi. If you take your life, and that's the way you're going to win against your physical impulses, insanities, you lost, you're dead. If you're going to kill your spirituality, because you cannot take no more this psychosis that's going on in your brain. The two voices, the split personality. So you know what? I'm done with the spirituality. You've lost. So the only way to win the ultimate war that God has set up between the spiritual and the physical, within the human being, between your physical and your spiritual, your soul and your body, your godly soul, your animalistic soul, your selfless spirituality, and your egocentric driven drive for pleasures. The only way to win it is through Padab Shalom Nafshi. And that's why the title of tonight's lecture is The Peaceful War of Transformation. Because if there's bloodshed, then you both lost. The soul can never do a mitzvah once it's dead. It's very simple. The body cannot have any physical pleasure once the soul says goodbye to it. So ultimately speaking, the true definition of war, as God has planted it, is because war is the only place where peace can take place. Now I know that sounded way out there, so I want to say it again. Ultimately speaking, war is the only place where peace can take place. Why so? Because what happens in the war between two opposites is that you need to find the inner essence which makes both opposites two parts of one whole. Equally parts of one whole. Let's talk about this. Rabshirin Bayochai, the famous composer of the Zohar, the compilator and the composer of Zohar. When he spoke about death, he said, it's as if he's leaving this banquet hall of the wedding. This world is a wedding banquet hall. Why is the world, why is the world a wedding banquet hall? Because this concept of a wedding, the soul and the body, the husband and the wife, absolute paradox, absolute antithetical opposites. But only when the two are willing to find peace and become one, can they be a conduit for God's infinite and internal power of reproduction. So ultimately speaking, the only place where you can have true peace is when two opposites can get beyond their opposites and cause transformation. If you don't have two opposites and there isn't the deeper unity of transformation, there is no true peace. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put it this way, right? When we're single, we sure pray to God that there's domestic peace. <laughs> if there's no domestic peace when you're single, then we really got problems here. Time to call the people with the white jackets. Where's true peace taking place is in the house where there are two opposites living together. 
Two opposites on every level of existence. From the physical to the spiritual to beyond. But only when these two get together can there be the ultimate true peace which is the ultimate conduit for God's eternalism which is expressed in reproduction. You have one child who can have another child who can have another child and it goes on forever. The human race is eternal as long as two opposites can become one and create a child. So ultimately speaking, the sages of Kabbalah, the mystical sages, they look at this world, the battlefield, but they look deeper beyond the battle. And what they see is that this is a wedding banquet. A wedding banquet is, can you have true peace of transformation? Let's take it to the personalization of it all. Just like in the microscopic world out there, there's three levels of peace we spoke about. We spoke about King David, the peace that is created by imposition of fear. We spoke about the peace of King Solomon, that which is imposed upon by great light, great admiration. And then we spoke about that of Mashiach. So I want to take it to the same thing in the inner person. Because at the end of the day, I jokingly said, if you live at home alone, then you should hope there's domestic peace. But the truth is that that's not true. That's not true. We don't have inner peace. There are very few of us that have inner peace. Inner peace is made up of completely accepting yourself for the paradox of who you are. The physical ego and the spiritual selflessness, the soul and the body. Each and every one of us struggle for inner peace. Now, there's a couple of ways you can go about this. Let's talk about the King David way. The King David way is through revealing a certain level of the soul which is called Chaya. There are three levels of the soul. The lower three is Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama. The higher two is Chaya Yechida. So we're talking about the encompassing powers. Chaya represents the power of will. Now we know from those who go on a diet, we know from those who pursue, truly pursue a career, and we know from those who decide that they want to run the next marathon. The power of will is extremely powerful. According to Kabbalah and Hasidis, the power of will is called Netiyat HaNefesh. The power of will doesn't just draw a certain talent of the soul. The entire soul is driven. The wording in Hasidis is that the power of will drives all other faculties. It's very simple. When you're trying to understand something, it's very different if you're doing it because you have to do it or you're truly interested in the topic. Because when the will is involved, you reach total different potential. The same thing is overcoming obstacles. Diet is very much so a power of will. If you can actually, in the theater of your mind, as certain psychologists talk about it, if you can actually see yourself thin and beautiful, and you're just driven by that, you will not succumb to chocolate and ice cream. The power of will. So one way to bring inner peace and not hear the two voices make you mishige. Today I'm on a diet, tomorrow I'm eating chocolate, the day after that I'm doing push-ups, the day after that I'm going on a binge. In order not to live that way, you need to really really enact your power of will, the encompassing level of the soul called Chaya. However, like we spoke before, when you talk about this power of will, the enemy is held at bay until you weaken your power of will. That's it. The minute you weaken your power of will, you're going to go for a total binge. So in other words, the power of will isn't the transformation of the enemy. It's just that big stick that lets that enemy know, don't you dare. Just don't you dare. But the minute the stick is taken away, you're back in the fridge. 
Someone sent me a cute, a cute little thing. You know, on your WhatsApp, it tells you if you're online. You're online, last seen, 4.58 a.m. So someone sent me a WhatsApp. If my fridge had that notice, it would say permanently online. <laughs> That's the way it is. That's where we're driven unless there's something to stop us, the power of will. But where does transformation take place? Transformation takes place not through the revelation of the level of your soul called Chaya, the power of will. Rather, it happens through Yechida. Yechida, just to tell you what Yechida is. Yechida is the essence core of your soul. Yechida is what we call in Kabbalah the spark of creator which became creation. It's not like any other part of your soul. Now, this power of Yechida being the essence of your soul, this power of Yechida has that unbelievable potential to break through to the point of self-sacrifice. So we're not just talking about what we call an addiction recovery, white-knuckling it. We're talking about the actual self-sacrifice. Power of will is enough for white-knuckling. That's Chaya. But Yechida is a total different dimension. Yechida is the absolute transformation. Do you know why? Because your animalistic soul also has a power of will. And because your animalistic soul also has a power of will, so ultimately speaking, the power of will from the animalistic soul can cause havoc to the power of will from your godly soul. You know what that feels like. I really want that cake. No, you're on a diet. So you're not just two, one voice is timid and one voice is loud. Both voices are adamantly at a standoff. And because you have a power of will also to animalistic soul, ultimately speaking, there is uncertainty until death. Which is what God told Cain. God told Cain that this inner war, it will haunt you and follow you. It will wait at your door. And you will be its yearning. But you can beat it. So what happens here is you have two power of wills. And they're two stubborn, all-encompassing, infinite powers. Never get in the way of a person with the power of a will. He will run you over. Or she will just demolish you. So because you have two power of wills, on the level of Chaya, there is no certainty. The, the enemy can arise and overcome. However, when you talk about Yechida, the essence, evil does not have essence. Why doesn't evil have essence? Very simple thing. The essence of everything is what? God. So evil has no essence of its own. So when you reveal the essence of your soul, you're not talking about now igniting the power of Ratzon within your soul. You're talking about the essence of your soul. The essence of your soul has the power of selfless self-sacrifice. Now I want to talk about, just for a moment, what selfless self-sacrifice means. Okay? When you're dieting, it's not selfless self-sacrifice. It's what we call in Yiddish, Mirfabaita Taiva Fataiva. One pleasure is chocolate, another pleasure is looking beautiful. And you're trading a pleasure for a pleasure. Or if it's not because of beauty, it's because of health. It's the same thing. It's not selfless. Yechida is that spark within you that understands selflessness. And thus, when the evil, when the egocentric side of you faces that Yechida, it's totally shocked. It has total nullification and total admiration. That I cannot do. Anything I do has to be driven in what is there for me in this. Yechida speaks a different language. There's nothing in it for me. The evil doesn't get that. But evil knows enough to respect it and leave it alone.
So that's a greater level of peace. Not one that's driven by the fear or the power of will, but one that's driven by the admiration caused by Yechida, selflessness. However, the level of Yechida, the individual level of Yechida that each and every one of us have, this level of Yechida is not the ultimate level of Yechida. It's the essence core of your individual soul. And therefore, it does not truly transform the animalistic soul. It just brings out an admiration from the animalistic soul. The true definition of transfer transformation is only done by the Yechida of Mashiach. Because when we talk about Yechida, not on the individual level, but on the collective level, the Yechida of the universe, what does that Yechida do? That Yechida reveals within each and every creation that ultimately speaking, you may express yourself in an evil way, but ultimately speaking, you were created by God, and thus ultimately speaking, you are good. That is the ultimate transformation of Mashiach. Mashiach, it's very interesting. If you look, Mashiach's point is to reveal within every single thing, even though we see it as evil. There's a very interesting concept. When Mashiach comes, pig will be kosher. But the reason why pig is not kosher is because it comes from the Gimel Klippot Atmeot. It comes from true evil, whatever that means spiritually. However, Mashiach's point is to touch the Yechida within everything. And when, when you touch the Yechida within everything, then you realize that everything is good. It expressed itself bad. It manifested itself bad. But it is good because God is everything and everything is God on the Yechida level. If so, everything must be good. And that's when Mashiach comes. Evil will be eradicated. What does it mean evil will be eradicated? Evil has no essence. Evil only has expression. You don't find an evil thing. You find the evil expression of a thing. And therefore, Mashiach eradicates that. And the essence of everything is revealed. And all of a sudden, everything sees that it truly is goodness and kindness. Thus, we'll have world peace. In closing. This is a very interesting teaching. Now, Trevor emphasized it many, many times. That Mashiach is not to be brought by God. Because the whole purpose of creation is, and to quote the famous saying, of the people, by the people, for the people. Remember what we said. Mashiach has to be the Yechida that comes from the genetics of us, the physical. That which can express itself in an egocentric, egocentric driven form of evil. So Mashiach can't come from above because then we have another King Solomon. He's not Mashiach then, he's King Solomon. The whole point of Mashiach is that it should come from the DNA strands of us, our physical pleasures, our physical eye, power, fame, lust, beauty. Whatever drives me to do that, that has to bring Mashiach. That's what Yechida, the collective Yechida is all about. Not about the Yechida of my soul shining. It's about the Yechida of my body shining. The Yechida of my animalistic soul shining. That has to come from me. If not, it's not real. Thus we're taught that Mashiach will be the revelation of what you and I are doing here, now, today in exile because that's the only true Mashiach that can come if not it's an imposition eventually to be thrown off and return to our old ways that means that what's happening here let's talk about this how can I do such a Yechida thing bottom line so I have to feel the Yechida Mashiach I barely feel my own Yechida I question whether I'm really willing to die for anything now you're telling me I have to be the collective Mashiach, Yechida? Which, by the way, there's a source for this in prayers. On the high holidays, on the holidays, if you remember, 
you add on a paragraph when you take out the Torah and you pray over there in that gray box you pray over there that God should fulfill the verse that says and I will place within him the wisdom and da 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 however that verse talks about Mashiach so why am I asking God to reveal that in me I'm not Mashiach the answer is because each and every one of us have a spark of the collective excuse me Mashiach so taking it a step le- a step deeper but on a practical level you and I have character faults ones that we're ashamed of ones that we actually beg that God should just take them away from us already we have character faults that we know stands in between us and our success not just spiritual success it stands between us and our business success it stands between us and our mission statement it stands between us and wealth the bottom line is we're living in America potential is here for everyone those who do not reach the potential of simple physical wealth it's because we have character defaults that keep us locked in our own cage that's the bottom line I really don't believe myself included when someone says oh I was never given a chance we all have opportunity that's what our founding fathers of America promised us and they actually are giving it to us day by day so there's some type of cage within me character defaults that cause me shame that cause me doubt insecurities it actually caused me enough self-loathing that I sabotage. It's very interesting. Just like people are addicted to money, it's actually a proven study that people are addicted to poverty. We're addicted to scarcity. So what happens is that these character defaults, what do we do with them? What we're learning here in this mimer of 1985, when the Rebbe is talking about this notion of transformation on a Yechida of Mashiach level, what we're talking is to really understand that every single, every single character default is actually a divine power of opportunity that we have taken awry. For any of you that have ever dealt with addiction recovery on any level, personal, reading, teaching, mentoring, anything you want. In step four, where you have to make a real list of character defaults, one of the things that you need to focus on is that your character defaults are actually divine gifts that have gone array. That's what they are. Most addicts are highly sensitive, highly intuitive, most of them cannot deal with their level of sensitivity so really what you're talking about is beautiful gifts that were either shunned in childhood taken advantage of god forbid in childhood and now instead of being beautiful gifts they actually became the handcuffs upon its owner its beholder so when we talk about yechida we're not talking about forcing yourself to deny your character faults. We're actually talking about, okay, what was God thinking when he gave me this character fault? Because God doesn't give faults. Do you know that in the teachings of Hasidus, Esav is better than Yaakov? Do you know in the teachings of Hasidus, Pharaoh is such a high level and certain levels even beyond Moses? From there comes forth all types of light. We're calling Pharaoh the essence source of light. Haman, what is Haman called? Achashverosh. There's a teaching that every time it says the word Achashverosh, by the way, the Talmud says Achashverosh was more anti Semitic than Haman. And yet Hasidus says that every time it says the word Achashverosh, it means God. Because the word Achashverosh means Acharit Vereshit Shelo. The end and the beginning is his. So we're talking about Hasidus takes the most evil people we've ever seen and tells you that you should know that they are even greater than any of the righteous people you've ever met. But the problem is that if you don't have Yechida eyes, if you don't know how to focus and start with yourself, don't start with, uh, I'm not asking you to go from here and start going through all the, uh, the horrible people, the infamous people of, of the history and try to figure out how they're really supernatural good. Let's start with ourselves. 
Let's face our character faults. Don't tell me what you think you're good at. Tell me what you're embarrassed of. And let's talk about what God intended with that. That's how we physically can bring Mashiach now. By revealing the Yechida within us. Where we embrace our shameful faults. Not because they're ultimately good opportunities and gifts. Let's talk about experiences. How many experiences do we feel like that famous poem of footprints? How many experiences do we have in life that we think these are horrible, painful suffering where God has betrayed me and left me? Kaylee, Kaylee, Lama Zaftani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because if you wouldn't have forsaken me, you would have never let this happen to me. You just got busy on the internet and you just stopped taking care of me. And then we look back at those experiences and we say, one second, Mashiach, Yechida, transformation, the ultimate fulfillment of all wars, transformation. So let me go back to that experience of suffering and let's go ahead and look for the spark within it. What opportunity did I miss? What gift did I miss? Because I was too busy. Focusing on the pain and the evil and the suffering expression of that essence of goodness. So practically speaking, what we're learning from Padre B'Shalom Nafshi is it's not enough to try to live the life of King David. The power of will. I will throw fear upon my impulses. And it's not about just bathing in divinity. My soul. Reveal the Yechida of my soul. That will work. But that won't do the ultimate transformation of your animalistic soul. Your character defaults. The suffering that we have in life. That has to happen through getting in touch with the collective Yechida of Mashiach within me. And here's how that happens. When you study Talmud... You're studying a very specific methodological format. Now, the format of Talmud is to delve into the mind, into the evil mind of the thief, the cheater, the murderer, and the rapist. It needs to define what the laws of evil is, and it needs to teach you how to identify them. For example, for those of you who have ever had the fortune of learning Talmud, one of the beautiful formats of Talmud is something called Migui. What is a Migui? Believe me when I say this, because if I was a liar, I could have said a better lie. And the fact that I didn't say a better lie and I said this lie proves that I am not a liar. That is accepted in the Talmud. And the commentaries come crashing. One second. Maybe the reason he didn't say the better lie is he should be able to use this as a migo. You should believe him on the other lie. You see what's going on here? The Talmud is trying to figure out the crooked way of thinking of a serial liar, a serial killer, a serial cheater, a serial rapist. That's what the Talmud's doing. It's clothing itself within evil. And that's why in the books of Kabbalah, we refer to the Talmud as a tree of knowledge, which has both good and bad. So when you deal with the tree of knowledge, when you study only the revealed Torah of Talmud, then you're going to have to identify evil as evil. That is not Padah B'Shalom Nafshi. That is not the transformation of Yechida where God is everything, everything is God, so everything is good. How many of you ever heard of Rabbi Levi Yitzhak Baditshev's Dudala? Dudala is a song. Du in Yiddish means you. And the song goes like this. You, you, everything is you. And if it's you, it's good. And God forbid if it's not good, it's you. But if it's you, it's good. Unbelievable. This happens when you study the hidden Torah. Because the power of the hidden Torah is to be see beyond the evil expression, which is what the Talmudic teachings will focus on, because they have to dictate law. But the hidden Torah is called Etz HaChayim, the tree of life. There is no evil. Because on an essence level, everything is good. Every character fault that you have is a gift from God. An opportunity to be beautifully you and individually so. 
and every single experience of suffering is the crushing of the olive to allow for the production of the essence oil. The world says that heroes are made in times of suffering, in times of war, not in times of goodness. So too with you and I. The hero within us, the true essence of our infinite power, of true goodness, lies hidden within what the naked eye sees as suffering. And thus, part of the Shalom Nafshi tells you, people, we have to start learning Hasidus. We have to put on glasses that teaches us that Esav comes from Tohu. Paro comes from the highest level, Mineis Parion. Achashverosh is Achashverosh Shalom. Haman is Amina Eitzazeh. Now, if these wicked people have good sources, you want to talk about where we come from? We're not evil. We have weaknesses. We have a lot of character faults. But we're not evil people. So can you imagine? If these evil people are truly good, they just express themselves evilly. Let's talk about ourselves. Let's talk about how we keep on beating up on ourselves. Let's talk about how angry we are on God because He gave us these impulses and these just weaknesses that keeps us poor. It keeps us so down there. How many times are we angry at God that we're frustrated human beings? You gave me a gem, you locked it in a safe, and you forgot to give me the key. But not if you learn Chassidus. If you learn Chassidus, you'll see that friction is energy. It's good without friction. It's very good if we can see through the evil expression of fiction. And that's what we need to do. And that's part of the Shalom Nafshi. People, thank you.